rom-com, chick lit, call it what you want. And if you're saying it in a derogatory way, that's your problem, not mine. That's where I'm at. Amen. (laughs) That's a manifesto. (laughs) Now I'm going to stand up and give you a rousing chorus of I've Every Woman. Hello and welcome to Whitlit, the funny books podcast. I'm Lily Linden, an editor at Vintage Books, and I'm trying to take reading a little less seriously. So each episode, I interview an author, comedian or publisher to talk about our favourite witty literature. In today's Zoom room, I have not one, but two brilliant writers, Laura Jane Williams and Abigail Mann. They both write contemporary, funny stories about love. And in this conversation, we talk about how they write romance, how they write comedy, and whether or not they do write rom-coms. I hope you have a a lovely and romantic time listening. Can I ask you to introduce yourselves as you would at sort of an, an amazing literary festival or something? Sure. Um, so hello, everybody. I'm um, Abigail Mann, and I write uplifting um, contemporary fiction. Um, so I've just finished my second novel. Um, and the first, as you mentioned, The Lonely Peter, um, that was an unpublished book that I submitted into the Comedy Women in Print Prize. So that was a, a good tweet that I came across that particular day. Um, and that kind of kickstarted everything at the time. I was working as an English teacher um, up in Sheffield and um, now I'm back down in London. So, yeah, living out lockdown as uh, as Laura has been as well, trying to write, write, write as much as possible. Look, I'm looking forward to asking more about how the, um, the award was the gateway into a publishing deal. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I think, um, Lily, you've spoken to Helen Ledger who founded the prize yeah um, (laughs) a couple of episodes ago uh back when life was slightly less um dystopian so it's all it's all very lovely yeah so immediately it's my turn to speak and I just go fuck Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um yes hi my name is Laura Jane Williams I just go by Laura I am the author of Our Stop of the Love Square, of forthcoming 2021 book, The Lucky Escape. Before that, I did a little bit of non-fiction. I had a book about um, my high school sweetheart who broke my heart by (gasps) marrying my best friend and (gasps) how I learned to become a whole person after that happened because I didn't know who I was without him. That was, was called Becoming. It is still called Becoming. And Let the Record Show was out before Michelle Obama had a oh. little... Uh, I think it sold a few copies, her, her oh, Becoming. I stole that from you. <laughs> what? Oh, and, God. Michelle um, Obama, what a horrible woman. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had Barrack's book come through. Oh. Um, is it called A Promised Land? And You'll I steal like, your book title next. You'll be writing The Love Square yeah. in 2022. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll write the promised land, um, and we'll and then we'll make it full circle, won't we? So yes, our stop, the love square, uh, the lucky escape, becoming ice cream for breakfast. Um, I wrote um, an audio short for Hodder called the Life Diet as well um, about cur- curating a life you love. I think I live a very particular way and so I kick-started my career by writing about how I live 
Um, but it was always my intention to, I trained in fiction at university. It's what my degree is in, uh, my first class honours. Only thing a first class <laughs> honours has ever given me is bragging rights. Um, <laughs> Would you um, pitch your book for our listeners who might not have read it yet? My elevator pitch is, the sexiest thing in the world to me is emotionally healthy men. <laughs> and so whether it's one emotionally healthy man in our stop who has done the work and is ready for love and, and so deserves it, or whether it's three emotionally hot, emotionally uh, healthy really men hot. in the love square. Uh, well, my go-to line is, hot men will never be in short supply in my books but the definition of hot to me is has done the work is just alpha enough um <laughs> and is emotionally healthy doesn't want a mother doesn't want a cheerleader doesn't want to you know come and see nanny for a slapped bottom um <laughs> emotionally well i want to I read was, that wrong gum <laughs> i was grazia's dating columnist for a moment and let me say there's many a man that wants a slapped knee from nanny and I don't write those. Um, so yes, emotionally healthy men, which is the hottest thing in the world to me, are never in short supply in, in, in my books. And women who work in STEM and have their shit together and don't have to be a hot mess in order to be endearing, you know? Smart women, emotionally healthy men. Oh, that's just like hooking up to my veins. <laughs> Abby, how would you got? We've got three floors. How'd you pitch your book to me? Um, as one reviewer pointed out, they only cook fajitas twice in the course of the book, but those are both <laughs> very important meals. Um, the lonely fajita is um, sort of about that period of your sort of mid twenties when you're trying to figure out what the your purpose is so she comes across a an advert for a live-in companionship scheme with um, members of the elderly community and that's where she comes across Annie who is an 83 year old stubbornly independent and sort of the two are are, are put together in this household and ultimately sort of teach each other um, a more fulfilling way to sort of live life amazing thank you now I am um... Up front, I want to ask you both a question. I noticed that neither of you used the words rom-com to describe your writing. So I wanted to ask you both, um, what you, how do you feel about the term rom-com? Would you describe your novels as rom-coms? And if so, why? And, and if not, why not? And um, I'm going to go to Laura first because I feel like you had your hand ready to slap me. No, I was in there just no I I um I love the term rom-com rom-com is um absolutely what I write in fact when I was developing our stop my first book which is about two people who meet um through the rush hour crush column we call it misconnections in the book um two people that meet through the rush hour crush column and as I was writing that and my my agent read the first draft and went Laura <laughs> It's supposed to be a rom-com. It, it, it's not. It's not romantic. So therefore, it's really hard to make funny. Um, <laughs> go back and try again. And I think. Um, I think I set out. You know, I always wanted to be like a Zadie Smith, a Jesse Burton, nitty gritty. Here's my observation about life. Well, heaven had blown your sucks off. 
and actually going back and reframing where I'd given um, an example of like crappy crappy male behavior or toxic masculinity reframing that and making it nice Re reframing the focus of of my characters and, and me as narrator and after doing that it made me focus on the good in in real life in where the good examples of positive ma ma masculinity were coming up or um where somebody had done something particularly gentlemanly or um uh, I saw something from Marianne Keyes today where she was talking about the importance of just alpha enough. Um, <laughs> and, and once I'd done this with our stop, reframed our stop, I stepped away and I realized I'd actually reframed my whole brain and trained it to look for the more positive. And you don't need a rope, Taylor Swift famously said, <laughs> you don't need a romance to have a romantic life. And by retraining my brain to look out for the good, like I did in the re in rewriting our stop, I suddenly realized romance is everywhere. And it totally changed what I want to be as a writer. I was very snobbish about a rom-com, very snobbish about a happily ever after. And especially in a year like 2020 that is all I have wanted to write it's all I've wanted to <laughs> consume long live um knowing where the story is going to end up it'll all be all right in the end because then you've got so much more room to play in the journey and as a writer I adore that as a reader that's all I'm interested in so rom-com chick lit call it what you want and if you're saying it in a derogatory way, that's your problem, not mine. That's where I'm at. Amen. <laughs> that's and a manifesto. I'm to, <laughs> now I'm going to stand up and give you a rousing chorus of I'm every woman. Sorry, that really was a rant, wasn't it? But it was amazing. It was just, it was just such an arrival for me to understand yeah. that. And so I feel very passionately. That was wonderful. Gosh, a rousing answer to, to rom-coms. I love it. How about you, Abby? Did, did you, did you have a, a similar journey with the term? Yeah. And, and similarly, I think it's something that I found myself resistant to. Um, this might be a sweeping statement, but I feel like university institutions, especially ones that teach creative writing, there is a certain snobbishness to them and that the, the writing that they are often teaching you is quite literary or they like to think that you're going to be like a literary writer <laughs> and I got completely switched off from it at university and it's and it turned me off writing for a good three or four years and so when I I, I did a master's in 18th century studies and like period dramas anything that involves like bonnets bloomers and like double-breasted coats that was my thing um and I was always thought oh, I'm gonna write a historical novel um I tried to write a historical novel and I was miserable because you know writing you, you spend so many hours doing it it takes up so much of your brain um I'm generally generally quite a happy person and I found that when I was writing this quite dark sort of <laughs> early Victorian period novel I was terrible to live with. I just, everyone was walking on eggshells around me because I was someone with, how's the writing going? And I just, you know, look like a cat hissing. And so when I was sort of trying to write um, in a way that felt natural, it was humorous and it was, it did have comedy running through it and it did lean towards being um, uplifting in the end. Did I think that I was writing a rom-com? No, but then I don't know if people do consciously know what they're writing when, 
when they're writing their first um, you know, long project, um, unless it's something that you have a really clear idea about, but I didn't. I just knew I had a story and I was writing in a voice that felt most natural. Interestingly, when my book, The Lonely Fajita, was put, put on um, websites that go out sort of early reviews, people can access the book early in, in exchange for a review. And um, it was branded very heavily as a rom-com. Um, and I always thought, oh, you know, okay, publishers know exactly know what they're doing completely. And that's the way that they wanted to go with it. And I thought it is romantic in the sense of the friendships in it. I feel like a romantic. It's not necessarily a like a saucy romance but there's I I think that some of the most like wonderfully romantic friendships that people can have are with sort of their female friends um with uh you know people that you meet who you end up having a bond with there can be a real romance in it um and then I think a couple of early readers were like this isn't got the heat that we were expecting and so they twisted the angle of the blurb and it's become less rom-commy um, <laughs> to the perceivable eye afterwards. Um, so rom-coms are great, but I do think that readers have a strong idea about what they want in a rom-com. Um, yeah. And that's so nice about them in that you, if people, if there's so much uncertainty at the moment that the certainty of having a book that they know is going to leave them feeling happier or, um, you know, they've had a really good time with, great don't mind that at all and I completely agree with Laura it to completely depends on who's saying it if someone's saying the phrase like chick lit or oh it's a rom-com or whatever and you can just tell whether they're saying it with <laughs> as, as, a, as a compliment yeah. or not mm-hmm. Abigail do you identify more than with like uplets because I feel like um the two t- rom-com and uplets as in uplifting literature I feel like um a lot of the time those two terms are actually used interchangeably and mm. I was being interviewed alongside Beth O'Leary and she called the flat share a rom-com and I was really surprised because mine are boy meets girl this is their journey whereas I felt something for example like the flat share was about so much more than that um and she was like yeah rom-com up let you know all the same sort of thing but it sounds to me like maybe you've got a bit of a distinction it's uplit in that um you know people are generally left with the with the warm fuzzies mm-hmm. um but uplit doesn't have the space to sort of shout that it's funny and so that's where oh, I kind I of dance between see. the two the terms calm. the, the calm, calm in the rom so <laughs> yeah like a so it's, it's almost as if the the term rom-com is uh, in some ways, both words are, are sort of a problem in a way because we were talking mm, about right. romance isn't maybe quite the right word for the different forms of love that, that you're exploring in your book. But equally, calm is this sort of complicated word that for some people is uh, a compliment and for some people is sort of, well, this isn't going to get reviewed uh, in, in a serious newspaper. And I, I really like the, the thought that, you know, rom-com as a phrase might be coming back into fashion because I, I, I must say it's sort of one that theoretically uh, feels like it's the best of everything, surely, you know, love and mm. um what could be better which, but which by definition is uplifting <laughs> yeah 
And it's and it's, a, that- it's a spectrum like anything mm-hmm. else, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've heard a lot of people say in relation to books that are rom-coms, it's rom-com, but it's heavier on the com or it's yeah. rom-com, but it's heavier on the rom. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you know, you stand with that. You know, yeah. if you if you're looking for that kind of thing, if you're looking for something that's more com than rom, then, you know, it's it's it lends itself to both. So, Abigail, would you say that you fall more into the com than the rom? Yeah, I would say so. I'd say it's definitely down the comment of the rom-com. Yeah, I say, I've used the phrase contemporary humorous fiction before, but I just feel like that's a mouthful, isn't it? Very <laughs> you, you sound like an Amazon subsection. Exactly. <laughs> it's not very sexy, is it? <laughs> Suburban, royal, humour, Northern England. Like they have their... To be fair, I would want to read books in that subcategory. Sort of <laughs> and Laura, would you say that you would you say that you fall more into the rom than the com if you had to put your your marker somewhere along there? Me, that's it's probably more of an interesting question for me to ponder than it is to reply because I feel like there's a joy in moving slightly up and down mm. that spectrum. Mm. Um, I did a real like physical comedy scene in my 2021 book um my forthcoming book which is something that has been picked up over and over again by beta readers the editorial team I I thought is it too much is like physical comedy too much but then I did watch a Catherine Heigl movie the other night and actually in these like um you know almost like the the mindless funny movies that I want to watch after a hard day you know if it's got Kate Hudson in it or Katherine Heigl I'm sold (laughs) and there is a lot of physical comedy falling over Mm. people in trees people doing silly things so um people in trees people in trees like a whole genre genre of comedy Uh, no you know people in trees comedy (laughs) moving up and down Mm. that because actually I think with any writing um the the thing that can have the most effect the reader is juxtaposition Mm. so the reason that rom-com works is because typically romance isn't comedic or typically comedy isn't romantic except it totally is um in the same way that you make a reader laugh and then you make a reader cry and then you make them laugh again you know (laughs) playing with that juxtaposition and finding out you know where on the scale any given chapter needs to be um yeah is an is an interesting thing to me definitely as I was writing over lockdown I was like let comedy just give I don't know how anybody sat down and wrote a thriller or historical (laughs) fiction like Abigail was talking about in lockdown I wanted total escape so that's what Mm. I had to write um so it definitely got a bit more comedy I think what was the kind of first nugget for you was there a, a title was there a character an idea so after I had the meltdown about not being able to write a historical novel, um, I had basic. I was in a position where I had told everyone that I was spending the year writing a novel, and <laughs> I was like, I can't go back to these people and tell them that I have nothing to show for it. So um, I started free writing a lot. So you know, when you set a timer, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, and just sort of stream of consciousness, or sometimes little prompts and things and this first person present tense voice was coming through a lot which um people who know me have said is very similar to the sort of the way that I would retell a story you know (laughs) if if I met them in in a coffee shop but the germ of the idea um came when I was looking 
for, for the lonely fajita that is came when I was looking at um sort of spare room um sort of unconventional living situations mm-hmm. um thinking okay how would someone live in London if they can't afford it um which is a very real <laughs> very real fear um and I just came across this spare room which was advertising a just a stunning flat overlooking St Paul's and the Thames and I was like how is this 200 pounds a week there's definitely something dodgy going on (laughs) um and it was a live-in home help companion for this couple who um one of their grandparents a grandma was living in there had always lived there they just wanted someone there to keep her company and you got bumped up to the list if you could um play the cello which was really specific um (laughs) I cannot um I can play the penny whistle the lord of the rings theme tune specifically and nothing else um so that I was like that's an amazing deal you get to sort of you only need to you only need to spend 10 hours a week sort of as a companion to this what looked like a delightful older lady so that was really the the kernel Mm. I suppose and then I built this character um Alyssa who was a combination of sort of my experiences of of leaving university stumbling around um different internships uh in London trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life of what it's like to find connection in a city which is so surrounded by people but can so often make someone feel incredibly isolated and lonely and so that's that's where that idea sort of sprung from. Laura tell me about about kernels for your stories um, and then we'll talk about how maybe the process has changed during lockdown. Abigail and I might be playing the opposites game because (laughs) what I'm very interested in is getting the vehicle right getting the package right um and it's a skill that I've been developing in tandem with my publisher um we agreed together um for our start with my first fiction um we knew we wanted to work together and and decided together on this idea of um the rush hour crush column the missed connections column um and because um our stop I was fortunate enough to have um enough success with that with our stop nobody foresaw it not even the publisher um <laughs> which I think makes me feel a little bit better um but because of the reception that that got I got tied into a four book deal um which is an incredible gift in terms of feeling comfortable with my own growth as a writer but because that we're with our stop I um, Avon are a relatively small imprint of uh, bigger HarperCollins, which is like one of one of the big four. Um, so I thought I was going to, you know, gently. I'm very committed to. I will write ten books. I will write fifteen books. If nobody knows my name until my twentieth book, I'm very committed to building a career and having studied writing. Um, kind of within an institution but also watching the careers of other writers I appreciate you know getting the six-figure book deal for your first book that it's just it's one in a it's one you know one a year um is the chosen one and everybody else has just got to get on with the the, you know the slog of it (laughs) um then got tied into this rom-com deal and it's been uh my learning curve is like that it's not a curve it's a mountain 
of what does commercial fiction look like? Avon have got great relationships with uh, supermarkets. So learning about how a buyer in a supermarket is so different to a buyer in a bookshop. A buyer in a bookshop typically will go for the experience. They will have time, they will browse, they will take recommendations. Somebody pushing a toddler down the book aisle to pick something up, you know, that they're gonna read three pages of before bed before they fall asleep maybe, or to take on holiday last minute. They need to look at a book, look at a package, look at a proposition on a shelf. I can tell by the color, I can tell by the title, I can tell by the strap line, boom, I know what that is. And that fascinates me. It's the marketeer within me. <laughs> How do you pull something together that creates that package? And so I think for highly commercial fiction like I do, it is about the package. For example, the cover of The Love Square. I knew The Love Square is actually based, uh, is a modern retelling of Far From The Madding crowd which is something that I had had in my mind for ages but as I was explaining it to my editor over afternoon tea I'm like one woman three men it's then she goes so it's like a love triangle but actually it's a I said yeah I love square and then boom that you know there's your title it's literally one woman with three men in the shape of a square on the cover <laughs> of the book when, exactly when. <laughs> um uh, you know, two's company, three's a crowd, four's complicated. And I actually kind of like to know what that whole package is, um, even as I'm doing the first draft. I like to know the title, the blurb, maybe a tagline. Um, and I call it, if you can bear it, the creativity of limitation. So, okay, with our stop, two people are going to meet through the newspaper then it's so exciting to me of that is the vehicle it's like how Shonda Rhimes talks about Grey's Anatomy the hospital is the vehicle but it's really not really a hospital show it's it's a show about love that's just the vehicle creating the vehicle and then going oh my god I'm gonna get coercive control in there or abusive boyfriends or um, non-monogamy or a cancer survivor or an absent father or an absent mother that's what gets really exciting for me and I find that more creative than coming to a blank page trying to come up with a with a story does that make sense concept mm. first story after is what I'm saying god every answer I've given you could just chop it all out and go to the last sentence where I finally get to my point <laughs> I'm aware of it Lily don't be silly. We're all we're all readers. We don't want one sentence. <laughs> we want a whole novel. Thank you very much. Well, um, this is um, I mean, yeah, exactly. Opposites game. Thank you both for for being so conveniently uh, opposite on on that one. <laughs> it, it's very useful rather than you just agreeing with each other all the time. Um, but it just goes to show there's no right, right or wrong yeah. way, is there? You know, it, it it's so personal. I have got a stack of books just like to my left about how to write a novel and every and when I finish a book I have to read them again because I forget how to do it because each story is different um but uh, with this with the second one because similarly in, in contract to do a second um half the time to do it in compared to the first where you had all the time in the world um knowing that uh I suppose commercial blueprint of which beats to hit when, et cetera, et cetera. And having that in advance is not something I thought to do before. Um, but yeah, I mean, Laura, does your, does your method mean that you your first drafts are cleaner? 
because if it does then I need to do more of what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) my my first drafts are getting cleaner our stop was just a nightmare it was a mess you know I just had so much to learn the love square because it was a modern retelling I kind of had somebody else's blueprint the lucky escape my forthcoming book I had and I teach a class on this called how to plan your plot uh three act structure all the all the beats to hit by by what word um (laughs) which made me feel a lot more comfortable going in um and understanding kind of the melody of the 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 words and the rhythm of the words this project that I've just finished I didn't have a plan for and I hate not having a plan because I think you have to work twice as hard in your head to you have to write the words whilst you're figuring out where you're going (laughs) yeah The the book I wrote over the summer I knew where every chapter started and finished so I just had to make it good what I've just um, finished is, is the cleanest draft of anything I've ever done. And I, I'm about to start work on my fourth novel. And I'm really, do is, is this, do I go back to not planning? <laughs> Potentially, because, because I kind of want to test my own learning. With our stop, I was making huge changes right until the last second. I mean, I was a nightmare. <laughs> um, yeah, you just, yeah. So we've, we've talked about what the first thing in your books is. Tell me about what the last thing to change is. Laura, you're saying that you were making major changes on, on our stop right up until the last. What Was there some sort of one thing in particular that you felt like, you know, the icing on this cake isn't right yet? It's me on the bones and I finally could exhale But yeah, for anybody listening, you submit your first draft, then you get structural edits. So where you look at, are you hitting the right beats? Do the right things happen in the right order? Then you go a bit more granular with line edits, taking it line by line. And then you get copy edits, dotting I's, crossing T's, that sort of thing. Then you get your page proofs, which is just checking, you know, rogue commas, et cetera. I remember with our stop sitting at my dining table, basically adding in more jokes adding in nuance to the conversations funny things and I think I had picked up confidence throughout the writing process to go yeah that I can trust myself that that's funny Mm. I can trust myself I actually my tendency is to is to write big emotion but what I love reading in other people's books are just those that's why Schitt's Creek is so amazing these throwaway (laughs) moments of like comedy goal but blink and you'll miss it so I think yeah for me the last thing is kind of like the the shit's creek element the shit's element you just add some shit at the end what about you Abby (laughs) did you um please tell me it was the opposite way around where you had all of the details and then you 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 made a major structural change at the end a bit a bit actually but then the first (laughs) the first my my first book and the second book could not have been more different in Mm. terms of like editing experience my with the first with with lonely with lonely fajita I think what I had to do there two main things with the last things one was there was a backstory to do with um the main character's romantic 
relationship that kind of fizzles out in an in a way that's quite underwhelming but it's meant to be underwhelming Mm -hmm. um in the beginning but that needed to be built in a little bit more so to sort of encourage readers to sort of feel attached to it or or not attached to the relationship but attached to the feelings that Mm -hmm. Alyssa the protagonist was was having and so that was a a change that came in quite late or building that in and then the last one being going through dialogue because di- I can I can write dialogue um quite easily and it, it that's the bit that I don't struggle with it's everything else <laughs> it's everything else <laughs> I struggle with. um and sharpening up I call it sort of sharp sharpening the lines so like like Laura was saying um it's you've got a, a, a line that's got a not a joke but it's it's meant to be a humorous line but it would hit home more if you took out like two beats within that sentence and then with this sister surprise, I printed off and, and, and charted the, all of the key plot points of which there were sort of six or seven and had them all pinned up on the wall like a serial killer <laughs> um, with all these lines attached, colour coding sort of bits that needed to pop up in, in, in key points because that book is plotted at... I, crime writers might be like, huh, you've got no idea. But that book was <laughs> more plotted like... Um, Things needed to be revealed at certain points mm-hmm. um, and dates as well. It all happens over a period of six weeks and I just could not figure out. I had a fake <laughs> calendar and I was marking these things on a fake calendar. Of if she sent an email this point and received it then, <laughs> she's in a place where there's no, there's very sporadic internet connection up in the Scottish Highlands and this is the surprise. And so there was this weird like timeline issue. It's all stuff that doesn't seem like it's important, but you know, there'll be a reader somewhere on the internet (laughs) who will be like, um, the dates weren't correct and it pulled me out of the story. That reader is my uh, biggest incentive to sit down and just do the extra hour of editing (laughs) in the day. Yes. That um, if you think you can get away with it by the very definition of, having that thought <laughs> you cannot like yeah. you, you think it should be no question so it doesn't bother me if they've got a valid point and I'm like oh it never occurred to me but on the odd occasion that I've had oh fuck they've noticed I, I'm disappointed in myself <laughs> I am disappointed in myself that person makes me work harder which is which is not an invitation for anybody to to, you know pull my work apart so to make me a stronger writer but um what tip one tip would you give to someone who has read your books and gone oh my god I desperately want to write something like this what what would you say to them and you know what do you wish you'd known the idea of doing it is never as bad as actually doing it because mm-hmm. you can build something up too much. And I did it for like actual years that people who wrote books were like living on a loftier realm and just had something that I did not have, which is why I couldn't sit down and immediately churn out 85,000 words of magic. Mm-hmm. Um, it just requires sitting down, giving yourself a deadline, breaking up those words over the course of if, however many months or years you want to give yourself and then doing it and also tell everyone that you're doing it this is this is a controversial one some people don't like sharing the idea of something before because it loses its magic and completely fine but I have to tell everyone I'm doing something otherwise um basically the idea of public public shaming is what (laughs) motivates me 
I've always taught anyway, but the reason I put together the particular workshop that I do called How to Plan Your Plot is because I did notice increasingly that that was the issue that came up. How, how do I do what, what you do? Mm. And, but for me, the whole, the whole idea of planning your plot in quite a granular way is that there is no excuse. You, you could teach a monkey up a tree to get from A to B and B to C and C to D in a thousand words in 45 minutes. Like it's sort of building on what Abigail said, it's not that big a deal, it's not that special. <laughs> so really planning your plot. And if you go off piece, then fine. Sort of like laying a track in front of the train. If I do the work of laying the track so every time I get in the train I can see exactly where I'm starting where I'm going for me that frees up any excuse not to just sit down and do it I think doing all that has to be in the absolute secure knowledge that whatever perfect book is in your head now is not going to be the shite that's on the paper at the end of it all <laughs> and so I embrace the trash draft should be trash uh, it shouldn't be perfect. And I, I think, you know, anybody from, you know, from, from us to, to your Zadie Smith, to your Jesse Burton, to your Shakespeare will say perfectionism does kill creativity. <laughs> you kind of have to prepare to be terrible. Um, but I find that incredibly freeing. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that as discouragement. I find, you know, sit down, write your shite and then have a cup of tea the most freeing thing in the world <laughs> yes I remember Shakespeare saying that um <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> I asked uh you both to bring a, a recommendation of um a very witty book that you love a genuinely funny book that was funnier than I really thought it was going to be um the forthcoming insatiable by Daisy Buchanan um I know a couple of authors who got preview copies who said I'm sorry this is so rude I I can't I'm sorry you know it's a bit too sexy for me um it's about a, a young 20 something trying to find herself who accidentally ends up in a throuple and there are some very graphic sex scenes but it also knows exactly what it is it's so self-aware Daisy herself is just jokes.com <laughs> and so if you you know the word slick is used more than once oh, no. it's a thumbs up from me something a little less uh something that never uses the word slick once is sarah manning's uh rescue me lovely rom-com that's coming out in the new year as well so that should be out as this podcast is god it's gonna sound so fresh all of these recommendations. Yeah, there you go there you go wowie thank you very much um the Oh my God, what a complete Ashling books by, mm. um, I might butcher these names, Apologies Ireland, um, Emma McGlyser and Sarah Breen. And they are just riotously funny. I didn't really know what to expect, but I had a number of people sort of just say, if you like, if you want sort of like an Irish version of Gavin and Stacey, um, <laughs> but with <laughs> the quantity of dialogue that Marion Keyes is famous for in her books, just that really like, you could be eavesdropping in a room and just be having the best time. But they are so funny. There's a particular scene where they're talking about somebody who 
couldn't get to the church for confession and so they just sat in the bathroom on the toilet seat and the priest got in the bath and they just pulled the shower curtain across (laughs) and I was just like (laughs) that image just stuck in my mind and I just thought it was the funniest thing um so um the other homework that I set you both was um to to read an extract how would you how would you feel about doing that yeah, I'll go through it. So this is from a um, a section where um, Elissa is meeting her possible future housemate for the first time, who is Annie, the 83-year-old pensioner who lives in North London. Um, I will preface this by saying that um, Annie has a Sheffield accent. Um, I am from Norfolk. <laughs> I did live in Sheffield for a couple of years, but if it doesn't get, if it doesn't come out properly, um, apologies. <laughs> okay. Shall we go and meet Annie now? Craig smooths his oily fringe over his forehead and I'm quite frankly insulted that he's the one who looks more uncomfortable. He leads me through an archway into a light airy living room that opens into a small kitchen at the back of the house. A pair of French doors are pulled wide open and the tinkling of a wind chime drifts in from outside. Sitting in a wooden chair, her legs stretched out and crossed at the ankle is Annie. Ladies, Annie, Eloise, um, it's Alyssa. Right there, now we're all introduced. Craig slaps his hands in front of him and his blue polo shirt rides up a couple of inches to rest on his hairy belly. I catch myself staring, so smile and turn to face Annie instead, but she's looking out the window, bobbing her velvet moccasins up and down. Oh no, I've been lumped with a senile. I do not have the benevolence for this. I'll let you ladies chat whilst I do the rounds. I'll be 15 minutes or so, all right, don't be naughty. He speaks with palpable sarcasm, not that Annie has noticed. She's quietly humming to herself. I hear Craig close the front door. The noise of Annie's carriage clock thrums loudly from the living room and the sound of secateurs cuts the silence into awkward chunks of time. Annie turns to me after a minute and lets out a sharp laugh. Thank Christ. I thought he'd never leave. Yay! Thank you. Um, So this is from The Love Square. It's a sex scene. Um, it's as you'll see perhaps not your typical rom-com sex scene I am very committed in my works to portraying realistic sex in all its ways shapes and forms um, I cannot anticipate a scenario where she rides in pleasure he rides in pleasure and together Uh, they reach a climax Um, (laughs) because I just don't think that's realistic. The women um, in my stories, they enjoy sexual encounters of all sorts. Um, (laughs) And and this is basically shit sex, which I was so excited to write because (laughs) I couldn't tell you when I'd seen shit sex in a rom-com. This is from chapter five. Okay. Mm. Yeah, Penny lightly sighed. Yeah, Francesco asked. Yeah, Penny said. Yeah, that feels good. Okay, good. Could you just... Oh, sure. Like this. Or maybe... Ouch! Watch my hair. It's caught shit. Yeah, sorry. No, it's okay. Francesco and Penny had initiated incredibly bad sex. He had kissed her. Kissed her everywhere. Penny had let his tongue roam her body, her cheeks, her chin, her breasts, her thighs, between her legs. She'd undressed him and pushed him onto the sofa, rolling a condom onto him and straddling his lap. 
she braced herself for the feeling of being filled, of handing herself over to him, of the two bodies becoming one, but it wasn't working. What if I go on top, Francesco said. Okay, yeah, Penny murmured, moving off him and lying back. He loomed over her and she grumbled, I just, these cushions, I'll just move these. She picked up a throw pillow and dropped it to the floor. Silently and with increasing half-heartedness, Francesco pumped away. His eyes were scrunched closed in intense concentration. Penny coughed a little. <clears throat> She'd been hugely turned on, but now things felt significantly less lubricated. Francesco stopped for a second to wipe hair from his clammy brow. They made eye contact and smiled. Francesco going to speak, but seeing that Penny was about to, and Penny going to speak, but seeing Francesco was about to, and so both nervously giggling and neither saying anything until Francesco uttered gingerly, should we stop? Penny said, yeah, it's okay, let's stop. The relief was palpable to them both. Thank you very much. Gosh, I'm shuddering and, and, and sweating and giggling all over again. <laughs> Just like that. When you do a reading that suddenly you start talking like the queen uh, <laughs> I, I completely agree I, I shudder listening back to these recordings um <laughs> thank you both so much <laughs> that's so wonderful thank you both very much now um I think we'll just have that that rousing chorus of um I'm everyone uh -huh. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a real pleasure. And um, Be being interviewed well or interviewing somebody well is an art. And that was good for me. It was good yeah. for me as well, Laura. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I feel like we're smoking on the pillow. <laughs> Especially yes, after darling. that reading. <laughs> <laughs> Rate, listen, and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah. had a great time. Thank yeah, you very much. Could. Yeah, if you could actually like and subscribe, that would be really great.